few years ago, Leslie and I and the girls took a trip to visit Leslie's grandparents in Huntsville, Alabama. And it's about a 12-hour trip, and so we wanted to make it in a day, so we decided to get up really early and hit the road so that we could be there by evening. We had a good plan in place, and we got off to a good start, but uh, there was one problem. There was a severe thunderstorm that decided to pass through on that same day. When we got to Henderson, it was coming down heavy, and we literally drove in that storm all the way to Mississippi. Well, about six hours in, the rain was not letting up, and we knew we were not going to get to Huntsville, and so we began to look for places to stop for the night. We finally decided to stop in Meridian, Mississippi, which was about two hours further down the road, and I was so thankful when we got to Meridian, Mississippi. Mississippi, I was thankful we, we got there safely. We had kids screaming the whole way, the van feeling like it was going to hydroplane at points. I could barely see the car right in front of me and the cars beside me. I, it was one of, the, one of the scariest, most emotionally draining trips I had ever taken. And we were just on the road for eight hours, and I was able to maintain control of the vehicle and get us closer to our destination safely. This morning, we're going to talk about a storm that lasted for 14 days and about a ship that was stuck in this storm and a crew on board this ship who lose complete control of the ship as the wind carries the boat and them with it on out to See, And we are going to see that for 14 days in this storm, the crew on board this ship cannot even see what's right in front of them. I, I could see more than they could. I could see the car ahead of me and the cars beside me. They barely knew which way was up. They could not see the sun by day nor the stars by night to guide them. It was a much more hopeless situation than what we experienced in our van on the way to Huntsville, Alabama. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 27. Acts 27. We are almost finished with this study. We are. This morning we are picking up, obviously, where we left off last week. Paul has been in Roman custody in Caesarea for two years and is now finally on his way to Rome. And today we are going to discuss Paul's trip to Rome by sea. And this account here that Luke gives us is as detailed an account as you'll find in the Scriptures. One reason why is because Luke is back with Paul on the trip. And whenever Luke's along, as an eyewitness, he gives us a lot more details. This passage is considered by many to be a very difficult passage to preach through and study. And I have to be honest with you, it was one of my most challenging passages in this series 
through Acts. And the reason why is because of how detailed it is and also because Luke uses quite a bit of, of nautical terminology when telling about this trip and he mentions many unfamiliar places as well, which makes this passage a challenging one to follow without a good map. That's why I've included a map for you this morning. So pull out your maps from your bulletin. You're going to want to follow along with this map as we go along, okay? What I want to do this morning is I want to first talk about this trip leading up to this big storm. And then I want to focus on this storm. And I want you to see that this situation for the crew aboard this ship in Acts 27 was bleak. From the outside looking in, I think most would conclude, having not known how it's going to end up, they would conclude that all the crew members aboard this ship would not survive. We're going to learn in our story today that most on board this ship felt the exact same way. But we're also going to learn this morning that God was at work in the midst of the storm. And he, once again, is going to bring about great deliverance through his great providence. He is going to lead this ship and crew and the prisoners on board through this great storm. We experience storms all the time in life, don't we? Some physical, like the one I explained to you on our way to Huntsville. We've had quite a few storms this week, right? But not all storms that we experience are physical. Some are spiritual, which at times can even be more difficult. Am I right? So this morning, we're going to talk about how we are to think about God and how we are to look to Him and rely upon Him in the midst of the storm. Acts 27. As I said a moment ago, we're going to study the events that led up to this great storm. Then I want us to draw out several principles. We learn about the person and the work and the word of God in the midst of the storm. Let's first look at the events that led up to the storm. First notice the start from Caesarea. That's point number one. The start from Caesarea. Look at verse 1. And when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Now, I want you to notice something here right off the bat. Notice the word we. Once again, Luke is back with Paul here. This is the first time that Luke is mentioned with Paul since they arrived in Jerusalem back in Acts 21. Luke was mentioned with Paul up until Paul's imprisonment, and now he is back with them. Notice there are some other prisoners on board this ship as well under the watchful eye of a centurion, a leader of 100 Roman soldiers, a man of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Now look at verse 2. We're going to set out to sea here. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we, notice Luke is there, put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus. So notice another one of Paul's companions is with them. We talked about Aristarchus earlier. He was a Christian, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So this ship of Edramitium is on its way home. 
And Julius and Paul and Luke and Aristarchus and others caught this ship on its way back. This ship was a coasting vessel, and what that meant was it just traveled along the coastlines. It was not made for the open waters. Again, we are told that Aristarchus is with them. Remember, he was one of the Gentiles that Paul gathered up on his way to Jerusalem to bring this offering to the Jewish Christians there. Now, I don't know why, we don't know why, Paul is allowed to be to have a Luke and Aristarchus with him, to have these two traveling companions. Some commentators think that maybe Paul was shown preferential treatment by Festus. Maybe Festus allowed him to do this, pass the word along to Julius. We're not for sure, but they're with them. Look at verse 3. The next day we put in at Sidon. So they traveled up from Caesarea to Sidon. Look at it on your map. Sidon is just north of Caesarea. I've got it marked there for you. I've got the same map up here. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends, to other believers in Sidon and be cared for. So notice that there are a group of believers in Sidon, probably a church there, the result of Paul's persecution of Stephen, probably. Paul didn't minister there. We learn back in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, that was the persecution led by Paul, traveled as far as Phoenicia. And that is where Sidon is located. So we see here, once again, proof of God using Paul before Paul was saved for his kingdom purposes. He can and does use both the good and the bad, right? For his purposes and for his glory. And he will in your life as well. Now, we should not want God's will to be accomplished through our disobedience, right? But through our obedience. But he does use both, and he did in Paul's life. And notice here that while they're in Sidon, Julius treats Paul kindly. He says, and and Luke says here that he treats him kindly. He gave him leave to go to his friends, to others in Sidon to be cared for. Some commentators believe Paul may have been sick during this time. So they sent him to his brothers and sisters in Christ to provide care for him there. Again, we see another example of how Paul loved the church. The church loved Paul. Paul served the church, and he also was served by her in his time of need. And believers, we've said this over and over again. If Paul needed the church in his time of need, you need the church in your time of need. Many believe they do not. That is not true at all. We need each other. Look at verse 4. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Now notice the term under the lee. What that means is under the protection. They were sailing along the coast and here we see they have the coast to the northeast and Cyprus to the southwest which protected them at this time from the wind. That was against them at this time. So they're, they're sailing carefully through this area. Look at verse 5. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. Look at your map once again. Notice Cilicia is in brown. I've got them marked up here. And Pamphylia is in red to the northwest of Cyprus. And they came to Myra. 
in Lycia, the piece of land in Brown. Verse 6. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So they changed ships at Myra because the other ship is going to continue to head north along the coast to Edrametium, and they board a ship that is more fit for open water, a ship of Alexandria located at the bottom of your map in Egypt. So they get aboard this ship. Verse 7, Luke says, We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. Now, this is where I believe the map gets it wrong. Notice I corrected it in the black. According to Luke, They probably sailed up around Rhodes. Do you see that? They continue to hug the coast and then come on down. Notice Luke says, And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, they couldn't make it all the way up to Snidus, Luke says. We sailed under the lee of, under the protection of, the island of Crete off Salmone. So they did not stop at Salmone, as it says on your map, but passed underneath it. This is a long hard trip, isn't it? So that's the start. Next, I want you to notice the short stay at Fair Havens. That's the next point. The short stay at Fair Havens. Look at verse 8. We're going to set out to sea again. Coasting along it, along the island, with difficulty, and the reason why it was difficult is because they were not protected at this time from the northeasterly winds past Salmone. They're trying not to drift out to sea, all right? They're fighting the wind. They're having a difficult time. But notice, they finally make it to Fair Havens. Luke says, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lasea. You can see that on your map as well. Now, I want you to notice Fair Havens there. Do you see it on your map? I want you to know that Fair Havens for Paul was like Meridian, Mississippi for the Hale family, okay? It had been a long, hard trip. They had finally landed in a spot where they could stay for the winter months. It was not an ideal spot because it was an open area that would have been exposed to the winds of the sea during the winter months, which would have made it miserable to stay there, but they were safe. Now, the reason I know it was winter is because of what Luke tells us. We know that winter is approaching because of what Luke says in verse 9. He says, Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Now, the reference to the fast here gives us an idea of what time of year this was. This fast is a reference to the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the Jewish fast. This took place on the 10th day of the 7th month on the Jewish calendar, which was our time, end of September, 1st of October. From the extra-biblical historical books, we can gather that Yom Kippur took place in the 1st century around October the 5th. And at this time in the first century, during this time of year, it was extremely dangerous to sail the Mediterranean Sea. Ancient shipping records tell us that this part of the Mediterranean after September the 14th was extremely dangerous. After November, impossible to sail and survive. It's already mid-October. Not a good time to set sail for Rome. So notice what Paul does. 
Look at the end of verse 9 and verse 10. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now, I want you to notice here, Paul is not speaking prophetically here, all right? He's just using common sense. Because, spoiler alert, they are taken out to sea, and they do survive, all right? Paul's just using his head here. He's thinking, hey, it's mid-October. These waters are impossible to sail in the winter months. Let's stay put. But notice what the centurion does. Look at verse 11. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Now, we can look at that and say foolish, right? But in that day, if we were in that position, we would have probably done the same thing, right? Paid attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship. Look at verse 12. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix. Notice where Phoenix is. It's on up. I've got on the next slide, you can kind of see it. Fairhavens is the lower circle. Phoenix is on up. They were hoping they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there, which would have been a more desirable place. Paul advises them to stay at Fairhaven, but the centurion wants to take a shot at Phoenix. And the majority agree, so they leave Fairhavens. So we've looked at the start from Caesarea, the stay at Fairhavens. Now let's look at the storm at sea. Notice what happens. You can see this on your map, how this happens. Look at verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. So things at the first seem to be going pretty smooth here, according to plan. The south wind is blowing lightly, keeping them close to the shoreline as they sail along Crete, close to the shore. And then we have the dreaded word in verse 14, but. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster. These were dangerous winds, whirling hurricane winds. In the NIV, it says, winds of hurricane force struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. This was completely out of their control at this time. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. So they're being carried out to sea by this whirling wind of hurricane force. You see that on your map, how they're carried out to sea? Had to be terrifying, right? It was so bad that this ship was in danger of being ripped apart. Look at verse 17. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. So they're basically trying to tie the ship together to keep it from breaking apart. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis. Sirtis was a place that consisted of sandbars and shoals. It was a narrow strip of land off the North African coast. Verse 18. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison or to throw out cargo. 
And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle or equipment overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest or storm lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They are in a bad way. Storm-tossed in the midst of high winds of hurricane force in a torrential downpour. They've done all they can. They've thrown out cargo that includes food, equipment on, on the ship, and the storm continues, and they continue to be taken further and further out to sea. Luke says, When the sun nor the stars appeared for many days and the storm continued on, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So notice, even our narrator has lost hope. He says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. It was bad. So we've talked about the start from Caesarea, the short stay at Fair Havens and the storm at sea. And that storm at sea was bad. It was a bad one. So much so that almost all hope was lost. But notice I said almost all hope was lost. There was one aboard the ship who was hopeful. You know who that is? You should. Paul. Exactly right. Yeah. So now we're going to turn our attention toward the Apostle Paul on this ship. We're going to look at his response. And we're going to draw out application from Paul's response on how we are to think about God in the storm. How we're to think about God in the storm. I want you to notice three truths from this story about God in the storm. First, we learn in this story, number one, God's word can be trusted in the storm. God's word can be trusted in the storm. Though Luke indicates at the end of verse 20 that he's lost all hope, I'm sure most everyone else on the ship had lost hope. Notice Paul doesn't. Notice how he responds to the crew in the midst of this storm. Verse 21, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and occurred this injury and loss. So notice here, Paul gives them an I told you so, right? Now, why does he do that? What, what good would that have been to them? Does he do it just to rub salt in the wound? No. I think what Paul is doing here is he's reminding them that he was right when they're at Fairhavens in, in hopes that they maybe will now listen to the advice that he's about to give. Paul basically says here, look, you guys didn't listen to me at Fairhavens. Maybe now. You're going to listen to me. Notice what he says, verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. I love that. You guys are going to survive, but the ship's not. They're probably like, how's that going to happen, right? Yeah. Can you imagine this scene? The situation is, is dark. It seems as if all hope is lost. It's so bad that even Luke has lost all hope that they're going to survive. And in the midst of this dark, difficult situation, Paul says, don't lose hope. Take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you. Now, how could Paul say that? Well, think back first to Acts chapter 23. Remember, Paul's in Roman custody in Jerusalem. He's being held at a Roman fort there. And we're told that while 
He is in custody in this Roman fort. The Lord appears to him at night and says in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, take courage. Does that sound familiar? Sort of sounds like what Paul says, right? Paul says, take heart. The Lord said to Paul, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So Paul had this promise from the Lord, but he also had a more recent word from the Lord as well. Look at verses 23 through 25. Paul says, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Now it's very, very important for Paul to make this distinction because there are many on the boat who did not know Paul's God. They did not believe in and were not worshiping the one true God. Verse 24, And he said to me, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God. Underline that, that it'll be exactly as I have been told. So so Paul says here, God has spoken to me twice now. And he has said, I'm going to make it to Rome. And I am confident. I have faith in God that I'm going to get there. I have faith that it's going to happen exactly the way God said it's going to happen. He has told me that I'm going to stand before Caesar. He has told me that no lives are going to be lost on this ship, and I believe him. And Paul's response in this storm was no different than the way he responded in any storm in his life. In the storms of Paul's life, get this, he responds by trusting in God's Word. How do you respond in the storms of your life? Though some respond like Paul, oftentimes we respond in the opposite way, right? We turn inward. We get our focus off of who God has called for us to be in Jesus and what he's called for us to do for him. We don't look to God. We don't trust in what he has said. We go into panic mode, right? We take matters in our own hands. We forget that God is in control and that God is good. Now, some will hear that and they'll argue with that and they say, well, God has not appeared to me like he appeared to Paul. He's not sent an angel to me. He's not spoken audibly to me. He's not made specific promises to me. That may be true, but though that's the case, listen, we do have a certain word from God that we can look to and that we should cling to and trust in in the storms of this life. We have this book right here. God has gone to great lengths to get this book in our hands. And he tells us in this book, he gives us promises that we can trust in, that we should look to and cling to in his word. He tells us when the storms of this life come, he is still in control at all times. Even at times when it seems as if he's not in control, we learn that those are the times he is very much in control. Now, we don't always choose to believe this, do we, in the storms of this life? That's why we panic. We take matters into our own hands, and we get depressed, and we lose hope. But we're told time and time again, especially in the tough times, that God is in control. We also learn that he is good. He is good. I know this is 
pretty cliche in Christian circles, the saying that God is good all the time and all the time God is good, but it's absolutely true. It is, especially in the storms of this life. So the question you need to ask yourself today is this, whether or not you believe it, whether or not you are resting in these truths, that God is in control, that he is good, that he is at work in the midst of the mess of your lives, bringing things to his ultimate good and perfect end, like he says in his word. We learn in this passage that God's word can be trusted in the storm. We also learn this, this is great, God triumphs in the storm. Now, notice I said God triumphs. It's very, very important that I stress that. Look at verse 23 and 24 again. Paul says, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Now, that's a certain word there, isn't it? You must stand before Caesar. Notice again why Paul and others aboard this ship are spared. They are spared because Paul must go to Rome. And the reason why Paul must go to Rome is to fulfill the mission that God has given. Paul is going to be spared to be a witness for Christ in Rome. That's the main reason Paul survives against all odds in Jerusalem and in Caesarea and during this storm at sea. It's for the sake of God's gospel. It's to be a witness for Christ in Rome. This is what the book of Acts is all about, folks. It's about God's gospel triumphing against all odds for his name's sake, for his glory, for the sake of his gospel, for this mission. This is very, very important for us to keep in mind because there are many today who believe that Christianity is all about me. It's, it's all about my successes spiritually. It's ultimately about my growth and godliness. It's about me making it through storms. It's ultimately about my successes, my ministry, my walk with the Lord, my relationship with God. I hate to burst your bubble if that's the way you think this morning, but that is not ultimately what Christianity is about. Christianity is ultimately about God and his gospel and how it triumphs through his people. Now, we play a role in this. And when we come to saving faith and make it through storms in this life and grow in godliness, that is very much a part of the work that God is doing. And we benefit from that, but we are not the center of the story. We're not. We are not the center of this mission. There is a greater work taking place, a greater work that God is doing, a much bigger story that is unfolding. And though we play a role, it's important that we keep this perspective so that we continue to humbly and faithfully do our part, pointing the way to Jesus and pointing others to Jesus. It's very important to remember in the storms of this life that God and his gospel triumph no matter what. And it's important for us to remain focused on that and remain faithful to God no matter the storms that hit. And it's important that we keep this desire for his will to be accomplished through us and that we continue to shine the light of Christ in this dark and dead world and direct others toward him because he is the hope, the only hope 
of salvation. One last thing. Not only do we see that God's word can be trusted in the storm and that God triumphs in the storm, but we also see in this passage that God provides salvation in the storm. Look at the end of verse 24 through verse 26. Again, Paul tells the crew aboard this ship that this angel that God sent has said this. God has granted me, he says, all who sail with me, verse 25. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it'll be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. We learn in verse 37 that there were 276 people aboard this ship. And we're going to learn next week that God stays true to his promise. All of them survive. Now, think about this. It wouldn't be great to be on the ship, right? But think about if you were. How great would it be if you were on the ship to have Paul on board with you and be spared because he is on board? They got to experience salvation from the storm because they were on this boat with Paul. And the language used in Acts 27 is the language of deliverance, the language of salvation. And this story provides a wonderful picture for us of what God has done for us spiritually in salvation. And this is not the only time this imagery is used. This imagery runs all throughout the scriptures. Remember back in Genesis, there's a flood. And God is the one who is going to send this flood. And the reason why he's going to send this flood is because he's a just God. The world has grown terribly dark and wicked. And so God brings judgment. But we also learn in that story that God is a God of great mercy and grace. He's a God of, of love because he provides salvation to Noah and his family by telling Noah to build a boat. And to board that boat, and by boarding that boat, they'll be protected from the floodwaters to come. And they will be delivered from this flood. In the Minor Prophets section of the Old Testament, you have the story of Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah? God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah says, I don't think so. If I go to Nineveh and share your word, they're going to repent. I don't want them to do that because I don't like the Ninevites. So I'm going in the opposite direction. I'm going to Tarshish. And he gets aboard a ship. And he heads toward Tarshish. And remember, God sends a storm. And they find out the only way for the storm to stop is they got to throw Jonah overboard. And, and that's what they do. So get this. For Noah and his family to be saved, they have to get on the boat. For Jonah and the crew headed to Tarshish to be saved, Jonah's got to get off the boat. And next week we're going to see that Paul tells the crew in Acts 27 that for them to be saved, they have to stay on the boat, all right? So knowing them, they got to get on the boat. Jonah's got to get off the boat. Paul and them got to stay on the boat to be saved. You follow? Verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Let me give you one more example. Jimmy read it this morning. Matthew 8, you know this story. Jesus and his disciples are on a boat and they get caught up in a storm. And the reason they're saved is not because the apostle Paul's on the boat, but because Jesus is on the boat. 
Remember, he's sleeping, and they, they wake him up. They're in fear of their lives. They wake Jesus up, and he rebukes the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm, more calm than it was normally. And they're amazed by this, and they say, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Boy, that's a great question, isn't it? And it's a question that God provides for us in his word. He tells us who this man is. This man is God the Son, the Christ, the the Lord Jesus, the one who was sent from the Father into this world. And get this, the reason why God sent his Son, the reason why Jesus came is to calm the storm in our life and in our world that has come as a result of sin. And the way he does that is very, very unique. Get this. The way the sun calms the storm is by experiencing the worst of storms in order that we might not have to. Listen, at the cross, Jesus experienced the worst of storms. He not only suffered physically, but spiritually. Jesus not only died physically, but he endured God's wrath for us so that we might not have to. He experienced the worst of storms for us so that we, through Jesus, could be delivered from the storm. Like he calmed the winds and the waves, Jesus satisfied God's wrath for us through his death. On the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Every sin on him was laid so that we, through faith alone in Christ alone, could be forgiven of our sin and made right with God and have peace with God through Jesus. Are you trusting in God's great Savior today so that you can be delivered from the storm of judgment? so that you can experience the great calm of living in a right relationship with God through faith alone in his son alone. If not, I pray you would this morning. Give your life to Jesus. Make him your Lord today and be saved. Let's pray.